Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky. While we're in the coronavirus lockdown, I'll be presenting weekly interviews with playwrights that I've conducted over the past several years, either when they've come through with a new play or when they've written a novel. Eve Ensler is one of America's best-known playwrights. She is the author of several plays, including Vagina Monologues, The Good Body, Here, and Necessary Targets, also a memoir, Insecure at Last, and co-editor of an anthology, A Memory, A Monologue, A Rant, and A Prayer. I had a chance to sit down with Eve Ensler in early June 2012 in the offices of Berkeley Rep, where she was preparing Emotional Creature, a theatrical adaptation of her book, I Am an Emotional Creature. Eve Ensler in 2019 invited people to call her V rather than carry her abusive father's name. This interview, as you can hear, was very wide-ranging. Eve Ensler, before we get into the transformation of I Am an Emotional Creature into the theatrical piece, what is the origin of the book itself? Now, you came out of writing several other works about women. What brought you to Girls, which is the subject matter of Emotional Creature? Well, I think as I've been traveling around the world um, with the Vagina Monologues and V-Day, the global movement and violence against women and girls for the last almost 15 years, I've witnessed girls in a lot of situations and a lot of circumstances. And it's really been quite obvious that girls are struggling with some of the most difficult burdens and situations that are really going on on the planet right now. And I was really interested in that and and very interested in how girls were dealing with that, you know, either how they were kind of done in or how they were resisting. And in many cases, resisting because their energy and their determination and their, their beings are so fierce. I had been thinking for a long time, it might be really wonderful to do a piece about teenage girls, but I hadn't really had... I didn't have the form for it, or I didn't have the theme, or I didn't have the the story of it, even though I had a lot of individual stories that either I had heard about or read about or seen or dreamed or imagined. I mean, all of the pieces in Emotional Creature are literary texts. They're all imagination, but they all are somewhat grounded in reality. Then it occurred to me as I was traveling from places as varied as Brentwood to um, the middle of war in Bukavu that... Girls all seem to be suffering from a very similar thing, which is this desire to please, this mandate to please, this enforced kind of policy of pleasing around the world. And it didn't matter if they were pleasing fashion setters and starving themselves or pleasing their boyfriends and going too fast sexually or pleasing their traditions and getting their clitorises cut. That desire to please and that mandate to please was controlling them. And that gave me a framework for the play. And I started to work on it. And I think now what I realize, having spent like five years working on this piece, is that I know why now I wanted to write about girls. Girls are a natural energy force. They're a resource on the planet. They're the future. And if we destroy girls themselves or the girl cell, that girl energy that we all embody, we are essentially destroying the future. You're destroying 50% of the population. Right. Not to mention the girl cell that exists in boys and men as well. That part of all of us that 
is emotional and relational and brilliant where our brains and hearts come together and revolutionary and resistant. And I think boys are talked out. You know, I always say everybody's taught not to be a girl. Men are taught not to be girls. Boys are taught not to be girls. Girls are taught not to be girls. Women. It must be awfully powerful to be a girl if everyone's being taught not to be one. <laughs> the book then, you knew when you were working on the book that it was going to be this theater piece? I did. I did. I wanted to begin to, as a book because I wanted to get the stories out. And then I thought, I'll have time to shape it afterwards into a play. And the play itself has six different women, young women, who are young enough to play girls. They're both interacting with one another and giving monologues and singing and dancing. Is that correct? That's correct. Against a background of various videos. Mm -hmm. That's a very different kind of creation than Vagina Monologue. It's not a play. This is very much a play. It's very much a play. But... I think that music and I think video really adds to the telling of the stories and and adds to the making of the play. Every subject requires it and creates its own form. And in writing about girls, it was impossible, to be honest with you, not to have music. It was impossible not to have video. It was impossible. You know, they brought that into the piece by the nature of what and who girls are. And I'm very excited because I have never really written songs before, and I never really had a piece with music before. Early in my career, I did a piece called Cinderella Cendrillon, which was an opera, which I helped rewrite in this avant-garde kind of way. But I feel very, very excited about the music. And Charles Johan Lingerfelder did did the music, and he's South African. And we we workshopped the show in South Africa and Paris and met Charles there. And we thought he was going to write some incidental music, and he just started taking my words and turning them into these amazing pieces. And we were like, yes, this works. It's moving the show in really exciting ways. So in the original workshops in South Africa and Paris, this music part was not there. Yes, it was. It started in South Africa. So you kind of met up with them and say, hey, yeah. let's go Let's go for it. Well, we thought we were going to do incidental music. We didn't think it was going to be songs. And then he was so brilliant and talented and was able to work with my words in a way that that just led us to say, okay, there can be songs and there can be dance and there can be, you know. That's words from I Am an Emotional Creature. Yes, then? all the words in the songs are words I, that are either from the play or that I wrote. I wrote a couple of new songs with him. Actually, I wrote a song in Paris that was inspired by being in Paris. Eve Ensler, as I was reading the book, not being a girl and never having grown up as a girl, some of the issues that you raise in Emotional Creature are things I related to, certainly, the idea of looking at the popular girls, in Mm -hmm. my case, the popular boys. Mm -hmm. There is no difference. No, I don't think there is. And I'm using girl as the frame around this, but when we were in South Africa and Paris, a lot of boys came and people, you know, boys were leaving the production in Paris going, je suis a créature émotionnelle, you know, this is my story, I'm emotional, I feel just as left out and I feel just as abandoned. What I hope is that we all recognize we have girl in us, and I'm not even sure it's a gendered thing as much as a a, a spirit or an energy that we're all told at some point to get rid of, you know, that we're being too intense, too alive, too emotional, too, 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 too. And in fact, I don't think we are. I think we were really, really on it. We need to get it back. But on the other hand, emotion can also be anger and anger can come out in some very, very warped ways as well. Right. But I think when we, we talk about emotion, you know, this only, we have so much data right now. We have so much data. We know so much. We, we can we can talk about, for example, how the world will be done in by global warming, and everyone can quote every statistic. But those statistics are not moving us to action. 
that we just walk around quoting the statistics. It's feelings connected with data that move us to action. And I think our feelings have so long ago been muted and denied and undermined and second-guessed and criticized that we don't trust our feelings. And yes, anger alone can lead to, but data alone can lead to an equal death. And it is leading us to global death, you know, data without feelings attached to it. And I think if we connect emotions to what we know, that makes for compassion, that makes for action, that makes for activism. In 2010, you wrote, I think violence against women in America has become ordinary. It's been made acceptable. Even trying to get candidates to talk about violence against women would be like trying to get them to talk about air. And then, you know, we also get two years later, Santorum and his campaign against women and the notion that all of this activism is leading us further into kind of a right-wing death spiral if we're trying to do all this and it's just rebounding, then what? Well, a couple of things. It's not just Centaurum who's against women. Romney should be put right into that class with him and everybody is associated with that little cabal in the GOP. But I want to remind us of something. The reason I think this kind of reaction is happening is because we are making progress. You don't have that kind of extreme reaction unless you've moved forward. This year, for example, in V-Day, we had, um, let me see how many, 5,400 productions in 1,800 places of the vagina monologues. That's a lot of vagina monologues happening in the world. We started out with one, okay? So we're seeing enormous progress in a lot of different ways. Have we ended violence against women? No. Have we brought the issue front and center? Are people talking about it? Have we moved women to have their voices and, and look at their vaginas and know their vaginas? And own? Yes, we've done that. I don't think we should we should give so much credence and power to people on the right as if they're like defining the times that we're living in. They are a cabal of particularly well-funded, very loud white men, <laughs> primarily, who are driving and resisting and trying and fighting desperately not to move into the future, which is going to be redefining their role in a very drastic way. So basically, they're operating out of fear? Absolutely. I think we are at a very big transition moment in human history. And how, who, what men are and who, how, what women are is very much up for definition and evolution right now. And I think those who are able to go with the flow and say, okay, I knew myself as a man this way, but now I may know myself differently, will do very well in this time. And the men and the women who want to be what they were are going to fight it, kicking and screaming, and they're not going to do as well. But we're going to move forward. It's going to happen. You know, you cannot put women back. You know, the genie's out of the bottle. You're not going to put us back in. After we're this liberated and this free, what are you going to do? I'm going to shut up now. I'm going to go and silence myself and give up my rights and, and not be a full-bodied, fully-voiced woman. No, that's not going to happen. Eve Ensler, we talk about the first and second wave of feminism. What we're talking about really is that the second wave never stopped. I never got the whole wave thing. You know, really? I, no, I never got what the wave thing was. I, I just feel like there's been feminism. <laughs> I think it's interesting that people see it in waves. I see it as a much broader thing, I think. I think we are trying, a lot of us here, to evolve the human species, to be a species where women are honored and equal and empowered and not destroyed so that the future can go on and so that men are equally honored, empowered, and cherished. Feminism is a tool that brings that about. 
you know, and has been a very helpful tool. But in fact, the dream is a much bigger dream. The dream is that we all get free here. The tyranny of patriarchy has been in some ways much more destructive to men than it has been to women. Men not being able to have feelings and growing up not crying and pretending they know things when they don't know things and not being able to live in mystery or not being able to be lost or being bullied or not being able to develop their feminine side. I think that's a horrible existence. So I, I feel like feminism is that mechanism which is allowing all of us to be true and free and healed. And I would guess the gay rights movement then ties right in mm. with that because, again, it's breaking those boundaries of old beliefs. Absolutely. And where the patriarchy has defined how you exist as a man and how you exist in the culture, where the, the gay movement and the black liberation movement and women's movement and all freedom movements are coming together. And also movements that are here to free the earth and honor the earth are in solidarity as we're talking about another way of being here on the earth, which isn't about a few people at the top, the father having the power and determining the way and the money and the economic destinies and the physical bodies of the many. And I think we are coming into that in many ways. And I think as we come, there will be huge pushback and huge resistance. When I was looking through the book earlier today, I reread the story of the girl who had her nose changed. And that got me thinking about exploitation of women's bodies, men's bodies. Women have to stay very thin. Then at the same time, people are getting fatter because of other commercial enterprises. Mm -hmm. And that brings up the question of economics. It feels in the end that we're being abused on both sides. Well, of course. I mean, I think in the end, isn't the corporation and the corporations that are really what's determining everything. Okay, women starve themselves, and that requires an enormous amount of products that you have to get. Women have to look a certain way. I think women spend $40 billion a year on beauty products. Then we're being told this is the food you have to eat. So then you eat that food, which makes you bigger. And then you have to go and eat and get those products, which make you thinner. And it keeps us all attached to this whole machine. And I think sometimes, you know, where capitalism and sexism have been brilliant partners is if you think about, for example, how much time and energy women spend on their bodies, fixing their bodies rather than fixing the world, or how our own bodies have been the country that we've been relegated to controlling, right, rather than controlling the world or having a voice in controlling the world. It's genius. It's gotten women completely distracted and completely off message and completely off point. And, and I think it's really a decision that every woman has to make now is like, where do you want your attention to be? What do you want to be focusing on? Do you want to spend your life focusing on your body, which will take your funds and take your attention and take your life? Or do you want to focus on the world, which you could actually be in some fundamental way changing? Sometimes I think the world is very simple. Like the solutions are simple. It's kind of like, do you want to spend this hour at the store getting products that will make your eyes look less dark? Or do you want to spend this hour reaching out and seeing if you can raise money to open a school in the Congo? Really, it's a choice, isn't it? Where you, where you spend your time, where you spend your energy. And I say, give yourself 20 minutes every day where you obsess about your looks and devote the rest to transforming human existence. You're listening to an interview with Eve Ensler, whose latest book is I Am an Emotional Creature, which has become a production at Berkeley Rep called Emotional Creature, playing through 
July 15th. Do you plan to take it elsewhere then, as you did with Vagina Monologues? Yes, we're going to open in New York in November, and then hopefully this will have a big life, but who, knock wood, who knows what's going to happen. But whatever happens commercially, after the commercial life, I will release it the same way I did with the Vagina Monologue so that high schools and schools can have it around the world and we'll start. V-Girls movement has already started and it's online, vgirls.org, and people can go. There's already thousands of girls who are part of it. In the future, what I hope will happen is that girls will put on the play, they'll raise money, and we'll start a global educational fund for girls around the world. Will there be a V-Girl Day? Well, I think there will, but I think the V-Girls have to determine that one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to stay out of their way. How do you as a boomer sometimes deal with the fact that they're dealing in a completely different technological environment? How do you deal with that and try to relate to them? I find the whole thing amazingly fascinating. I had a lot of judgments for a while. I have a 16-year-old granddaughter who I spend a lot of time with. And sometimes she's tweeting, Facebooking, instant messaging, and taking photographs of herself online simultaneously. And I I said to her the other day, where are you? Like, what state of existence are you in? She was like, Bobby, I have no idea, but it's really good here. (laughs) You know, (laughs) there's so much I don't know about what's going on. Are people getting closer or further away? Are people are in more communication with each other? Or is this how people have come to avoid each other? Are people creating community or is it false community? I have no idea. You know, doesn't this play in a little bit in how you interpret the monologues, the things that girls tell you? Totally. And a lot of it, I just try sometimes to get as close to writing their voice. So I'm not making judgments. I'm just putting out the way they see the world and the way they experience the world, the way they tell stories and let everybody else decide what's going on. Was there ever a moment where some girl would tell you something and it could be in Congo or it could be in Brentwood? And you have absolutely no idea what they're saying, but you put it down on paper, hoping against hope that everyone else does. I wrote a monologue about Rihanna in the book, which is a perfect example of this. And it wasn't like I had interviewed this girl, but I did a ton and ton of reading about people's responses to Chris Brown and what had happened. And there were a bunch of girls who were writing in about how they felt really bad for Chris Brown. And I was just like, wow. And I thought, I really want to write that girl. I want to see who that girl is. I want to climb inside that girl. I wrote that monologue and people were shocked that I had written that monologue, but I was really happy that I climbed inside that girl because it really got me to understand a lot more about why girls stay with people who beat them and why people, girls are drawn to boys who, who are violent. And it it made me much more compassionate and sympathetic when thinking about it. And I think sometimes it's really helpful to write the opposite of who you are and to not just only write what you believe, but to try to climb inside other people who don't think the way you think, to try to get to the core of why they're thinking what they think. How else do we communicate with each other? How else do we try to unravel our differences if we don't really get to the core of why people have come to think the way they think and what insecurities or fears or sorrows or griefs or, or defenses have led them to think the way they think? Well, I think that's kind of the role of both a playwright and a novelist, period. It is. It is. And I find that the most exciting stuff. I like when you are just way outside yourself and you've gone into somebody else so deeply that you're actually arguing their case and you're like, God. That could become very difficult when you're working with uh, genital mutilation or rape. Well, I think in those cases, although I am considering doing a piece where I really do something about men next and really look at where men go with 
and why men do what they do. I'm, I'm very interested in looking at it from that angle, having looked at it from this angle so long. But no, when it comes to general mutilation and, and, and rape in this piece, I think I'm hopefully sharing different ways of looking at those things, the stories the particular girls are telling. Uh, there's no way you make those things good things ever. <laughs> They make for, for exciting reading, certainly the story of the girl who went out for a mm. two-day excursion mm. and wound up in slavery for two years. Mm. I mean, that that's an exciting, unhorrible story. Did, did you meet girls? Yes, I did meet girls like that, very much so. I, I've spent a lot of time in the Congo in the last six years. I've lived there part-time, and we do V-Day's doing a lot of work there with the women on the ground who are running everything, and I've, I've talked to many, many, many women, and Actually, I couldn't write most of the stories that I've heard in the Congo because people would be way too disturbed. City of Joy opened uh, a couple of years ago in uh, Bukavu. What is City of Joy? <laughs> city of Joy is a small city, a pastoral city. It's really quite large, where at any given time, 90 women will come who have been through horrible atrocities and sufferings, and they will be transformed. It's a place where women turn their pain to power. They will be healed um, through therapy, through dance, through theater, through art. They will be trained in all kinds of skills. We just opened the Google you know, Tech Center there. They will um, learn English. They will become literate. They will learn their rights. They will learn communication. Many have left and have become reporters like yourself and who are doing radio shows in their villages. Women learn agricultural skills. They will develop some kind of entrepreneurial enterprise. Then when they leave, they will go back to their communities with one or two other women who will be their posse, a cell phone, some money, and they will teach what they have learned. You have to commit when you come to City of Joy to be a leader, that you will take what you have learned and bring it back to your community. So what we are creating really is a cadre of women leaders who hopefully in five years we will have trained a thousand women. And we will have a small, mobilized, rising, we won't call them army because army implies something violent, but we will have a rising mobilization of women who will hopefully begin to take back the country. And how is it protected from all the outside influences? Well, you can protect things up to a point. There's a war going around. You know, we have this beautiful lotus growing in the mud and around it is a lot of violence. But we have guards and we have barbed wire and we have enormous security. You know, we are doing everything we can in our power to protect the women there. But there's only so much you can do in a war zone to protect anybody. And we made the decision that we were going to go forward to, to help women rise, even as the war continued, because to wait for the war to end would be waiting a long time and maybe forever. And if women are empowered and if women are engaged and if women stand up, they, in fact, could be the people who end up ending this war. Eve Ensler, let's go back a little bit. You know, now you're one of the major spokespeople for transformation, transformation particularly in terms of how we view gender and how we view feminism. And what got you on this path? You know, I think it's that thing, that great thing, we give what we want the most, right? When I was a child and I was living in very, very, very difficult circumstances in the midst of what appeared to be a really beautiful environment, you know, an upper middle class environment, and I was being you know, sexually abused and I was being beaten and I was living under violence. And I really thought I was going to die every day and didn't think there would ever be a way out. There was part of my brain that knew that if I could find a way to reach out and at least help somebody else, I could get outside of myself. And that seemed to work even as a child. It was a survival mechanism. The world is insane. It's just insane. You know, girls being killed for clapping and singing 
women marching in Egypt against assault, getting assaulted during the march. You nuns standing up against the Vatican and being almost excommunicated because they wanted to be equal. In one week, if I look at my inbox of the number of horrors that are coming in, our minds could go mad. We could go mad, literally. So I either am going to go mad or I'm going to do something about it. And my way out of being an insane person has always been to take action and to write or to do something at least. And what I have learned, you know, over these last 15 years, particularly, although my life, I've been an activist a long time, but these 15 years, you know, through B-Day, with many, many activists, thousands of activists around the planet, we've made concrete change in people's lives. And if I look at the Congo, if I look at Agnes in, in Kenya, who created two homes to stop female genital mutilation, and to think of how many thousands of girls she saved, life is getting better for people. Now, it's not getting better for everyone. And there's millions and millions of people living in squalor and poverty. And there's billion women on the planet who will be beaten and raped in their lifetime. But we are making progress. We are making change. I just hold on to that. I hold on to that. That's where I go because the alternative is madness and not wanting to be here very much anymore. You know, it starts with art, which brings me back to the question, uh, you know, being an artist, early on, were you writing plays? Were you writing poetry? I was. I started writing poems, I think, when I was eight years old. I think things always came to me in terms of words and finding words and finding language for things. People say, why do you write? And I write because I have to. I've always had to write. You know, it was a way of, of making sense and, and creating a persona that was not this persona who was being swallowed by the madness. You know, I have such faith in art. I have such faith in theater because I think it has a capacity to reach people in ways that the polarization of politics doesn't. You know, the, we, we all get into our corners politically. I can be the most expansive person on a stage and be inhabiting this character and understanding this point of view. But if you start getting me talking about Ronald Reagan, do you know, or you get me talking about George Bush, or you get me talking about Mitt Romney, I will just, I become someone else. I'm like another creature. And I think we're all that way. There's something about politics that just gets us into our corners. And I think what art has a capacity to do is break us into paradox. I think one thing that comes up, and, and I'd like to ask you about this, is that the more personal we get in our own work, or in your case, the more you write personal, really personal monologues, on some level, those are the most universal. Absolutely. You know, I used to teach a class and I used to say that the most specific is the most universal. I'm just about to finish a new book, um, which is called In the Body of the World, which is really about... It's really about my cancer and really about Congo and really about the emergence of those two things. But it's the most personal book I've ever written. It was really very scary. The whole experience was really exhausting, but it was also the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. And when I watched the girls who were performing the play on stage, and I watched when they find the specificity of moments or when they bring their specific self the language, to the girl, to the story, to the village, to the town, wherever they are, all of a sudden the whole world opens up for everybody, you know? And when you tell on yourself, when you tell on yourself and you tell about the mess that you are and you tell about the complicated, confused, lost human you are, everybody seems to be okay because everybody seems to be, but when you have this kind of performative notion of yourself, you know, you buy into other people's idea of you, uh, you know, as like, oh yeah, she's the warrior and she's knows what she's doing. And, you know, then you know, it's all, 
it's all nonsense. You know, we're all lost here. We're all lost here. And I think the problem with patriarchy is that it teaches men that they have to pretend that they're not lost. And so they bl- they lead us blindly into madness, pretending they know where we're going when no one knows where we're going. Now I'm older and I'm lost and I'm very happy to be lost. I just want to have fellow travelers in the mad <laughs> mystical sea with me. On some level, we grow up, but on, on another level, we just get older. And another level, we grow back. You know, one of the things that's happened to me through Emotional Creature is I started out being, before all the violence and all the madness came, I was this very open, very loving, very intense, very awake person. And then the world came and people came and did all kinds of things that shut me down, numb me, got me into denial, pushed me in directions, alienated me from nature. It's been a long climb, a long journey back. But now I feel about 15. I feel like I've really climbed out of that morass and out of that madness. And, I, and when I sit with the girls and I see their joy and their, their love of life and their intensity and how, how happy things make them and how angry things make them, that's where we should all be headed. Like how do we strip ourselves back? to get to our authentic selves, to get to the parts of ourselves that we had to abandon along the way. Well, hopefully we don't need to get cancer to get there. That's well, hopefully. Sure. But if we do, I want to say, because in his book, uh, The Emperor of All Maladies, The History of Cancer, Siddhartha Mukherjee says that it's not a question of if, it's a question of when we get cancer, that one out of two people on the planet will eventually have cancer. If it is that we get cancer, I think we really need to reframe what cancer is and how cancer can be a tool for our evolution, for revelation, for self-understanding, as opposed to something we just dread. Eve Ensler, have you ever thought about writing a novel? You know, I haven't. I haven't. I don't feel like things come to me like that. I know people who write novels and I don't write narrative like that. I don't feel like I'm a novelist. <laughs> Who knows what will happen, but I don't feel I am a novelist. And when you turned Vagina Monologues into an HBO film, how was working in, in the medium of television? That project, it was so much fun. I had a ball. But, but I didn't really have to do that much differently. I mean, I got to perform the show, and then I did interviews, which I had already done for the show, and I kind of intermingled them. And it was fantastic because we did a live performance that we, you know, we did about three of them that we filmed and then intercut. You know, I've done other projects. You know, I've done documentaries, and I'm, I'm working on a documentary right now about the Congo. I really like film, and I, I don't want to talk about it. There's a possibility I could get to direct a feature in the next year. I'm very interested in film, although I have to say my love is theater. I'll always love the theater. It's where I live in my being. Is Caught in the Net the uh, African thing you're talking about? No, Caught in the Net was something else. The film we made was called What I Want My Words to Do to You, which was a film about a a group of women in prison um, who were in a writing group that I ran for years there. That was an amazing experience. It's really the journey of them in that writing group to create this amazing theatrical piece that Glenn Close and Marissa Tomei and some other extraordinary actresses performed. Caught in the Net is... Caught in the Net was something else. And that's gone. No, it's there, but it's a different project. (laughs) Okay, completely changing the subject. There's a TV show called Girls with Lena Dunham. Do you know the show? I don't. I'm sorry to say I have not had a minute to watch television. I feel like I'm culturally illiterate, but I don't watch TV very much. Well, that particular show is interesting because here's a 25-year-old girl who seems to have gotten it right. She's willing to take off her clothes and she does not have a model's body and or model's looks. 
it seems to be, for better or worse, something more truthful than I've seen on television in a long time, even though there have been a lot of complaints about possible racism. There's no African-Americans on the show. Her answer is, what, should I put in a token? I don't know. My perspective on that is when you're writing, you have a bigger responsibility. You know what I mean? I could say that about any play I've written, but I'll give you an example with the vagina monologues. When I did that show, I made a deal with my producer, who was a wonderful producer, that we have a woman of color in every single group that did the vagina monologues. I wanted to do that to make sure that women of color were included. Now, I could have said, in my small, limited world, I only know a few women of color. And once that's run out, then there'll be no more women of color in the show. But that wouldn't have been serving and moving women forward in a way that would have felt right to me. And by putting that into my deal, many, many women of color were in the show. And it was adopted by communities of color. And now Vagina Monologues is done all over Africa, all over Asia, all over South America. And I feel like something really wonderful happened. I, I do think we have an obligation, but that's me. Yes, you know what you know, but then then there's the responsibility of looking and saying, does my privileged group include enough people in that group? And look, I haven't seen the show, so I can't really speak. But, you know, do we say the people who own all the big houses and own the world, you know what? There's no poor people in my world. Who cares about poor people? I mean, our little particular frame of reference isn't enough. Do you know what I mean? We have to expand that frame. One of the reasons I'm such a firm believer in affirmative action is that if we don't consciously include people, they will not get included. We know that. It's a given. If we don't include women, they don't get included. If we don't include people of color, they don't get included. We don't include gay people, they don't get So I think all of us who are artists have to consciously and intentionally include everyone. That's our work. That's our work. I don't think we get away any longer saying, well, they just weren't in my community. Broaden your community. Eve Ensler, you've got the show which will run in New York in the fall after it closes at Berkeley Rep, and you're working on your memoir, and you're working on two documentaries. Well, we're going to move the show in November. I'm working on, um, well, I want to talk about One Billion Rising because okay. we want all of your listeners to be part of, we're doing our biggest action that we've ever done on February 14th, 2013. It'll be our 15th year of working to end violence against women and girls, and we wanted to end it. That was our point. We didn't want to be in business forever. We want to go out of business. So we're escalating the stakes this year. We're saying, okay, we have to go further. We have to be bolder. We have to be more daring. And we're inviting um, the one billion women on the planet who have been beaten and raped and all the men who love them to walk out of their jobs, walk out of their schools, walk out of their homes on February 14th and get with their posses, to get with their schools, to get with their centers, churches, synagogues, mosques, and dance. It's going to be the biggest global dance action. And we hope that if a billion women and all the people who love them dance, the world will be shaken into a new consciousness. So please come and join us. Go to vide.org and you can sign up to dance. And you don't have to sign up to dance. You can just dance, but just be part of us. You've been listening to a June 2012 interview with playwright Eve Ensler, who at the time was a Berkeley rep for the premiere of her theatrical piece, Emotional Creature, based on her book, I Am an Emotional Creature. Since 2012, Eve Ensler has published a memoir in The Body of the World, and in 2019, The Apology, in which she exercised the demons left by her father's abuse, and in so doing, wished no longer to carry her father's name, and has invited people to call her V instead. <laughs>